Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On February 18th, 1979, residents of Ain Sephra were blown away with something falling from the sky. It was a white, powdery, foreign substance. Yes, I'm talking about snow. But why was this such a big deal in the middle of winter? Well, this town is in the Sahara Desert, the world's hottest desert with average high temperatures of over 100 degrees. That's Fahrenheit for you counting at home. But in the same year, a new hire in the NFL would lead to the league being flabbergasted themselves. Foreign. Things coming from the sky. Well, a little bit sideways, I suppose, because it might have had something to do with uh, West Coast. And this guest was hooked. That new hire's name was Bill Walsh. Welcome football history dude podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the nfl your host is arnie chapman football is his passion and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron so hop on board his delorean and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour this time you step off the delorean the date is january 24th 1982 we're here in the Pontiac Silverdome, a place where yours truly would later venture to and watch his favorite player of all time. I can just hear the chants now. Barry, Barry, Barry. The entire stadium just going wild for Barry Sanders when he just busts loose up the sideline and takes it into the house to only hand the ball off in a nice gesture to the ref. But let's not get ahead of ourselves a little too much here. We're here because, well, think about it. It's late January. It definitely can't be the Lions because they're never making it that far late January. But we're here to watch the first Super Bowl victory of legendary coach Bill Walsh. The reason why we're talking about Bill Walsh has everything to do with this week's guest, Aaron Talent. We find out that he was a 49ers fan growing up. And much of the content we talk about in this episode actually revolves around this era for the San Francisco 49ers. Now, Aaron comes to us with over 20 years of journalism experience between writing and broadcasting in many avenues, including sports. And more specifically for this show, football history. Now, in this episode, we're going to take an in-depth look at a few of some of Aaron's recent articles. But there's so much more that you can go take a look at over on AaronTalent.com. That's with two L's. Now, the articles that we're going to talk about today include 
the top draft picks at each spot, as in each position, the number of all time, the history of the salary cap, and the top five USFL teams of all time. Plus, we're going to sneak a little bit in of his interview with legendary Dan Marino. Before we get into this interview, now is a good time for me to remind you that this podcast is part of something much grander. It's called the Sports History Network, the headquarters for sports yesteryear. Now, we're primarily a podcast network specializing in sports history, but we also have a ton of additional blog articles over on the website. If you're interested in learning more about the network, reading some of the great content we have over there, finding out about our other podcasts, and even joining the email list, the best way for you to do is just straight up head to sportshistorynetwork.com. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com. But for now, let's buckle up and get that baby up to 88 miles an hour because we're going to head back in time with Mr. Aaron Talent. Have the whole shindig. You got to actually have a microphone and the, the the windscreen. I mean, you do a lot of a lot of podcasting yourself. Then I have my own Andy Griffith show retrospective podcast called The Loaded Goat. And so each week we break down an episode of the Andy Griffith show. We bring in guests um, to talk about the history of the show or tights or whatever might tie in with the show. It's also, I don't know how familiar you are with the show, or um, but it's also got a very loyal legion of fans. They're not as much like Trekkies, but they are, but they do have a, but it does have a strong following. I'm not super familiar, but wasn't there an Arnie on there that was kind of a dope, or am I thinking of a different show? You're thinking of Barney, Barney Fife. Arnie? Yeah, Barney Fife. <laughs> Barney Fife. There you yeah. go. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, again, I, I've seen I've seen it, but I wouldn't be able to get back and tell you all that. Uh, it's a very unique uh, niche topic to be able to get into. I mean, like you said, if you have a lot of uh, uh, nostalgia fans, I got to imagine that that's they're, they're all over it. Well, I'm from Tennessee. And if you grow up in the South, I mean, Andy Griffith is just is just a way of life. And so the idea is, is I'm a, I've seen every episode. I'm a seasoned fan. And my co-host is, he's a few years younger than me, and he's never really watched the show. And so he's watching it for the first time with me. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a, you have that history and the fandom versus then he has that, you know, I get to get into it and you guys can have the different perspectives, which is kind of kind of unique. We're going to get in a little bit of that here with uh, football goes. Of course, my show is mostly football. And let's, let's just start off here with like what drew me into you initially. So I was randomly going through and like there's this picture on on Twitter somewhere where it was like you were sitting next to legendary Dan Marino. I mean, I uh, what was that interview for? Like what kind of was it an article or something like that? You know, it's funny. So before I went into just writing full time, I did communications for um, for a medical society. And so I'm always very sympathetic when, or not sympathetic, but always just very, when a reporter reaches out and, or a PR person reaches out and pitches me, I'm just always kind of like, okay, let me, you know, you're doing your job. Let me see, see what, you know, what, what you've got here. And I'd been communicating with this PR person and he one day said, Hey, we're going to be highlighting this, um, the suite that they're going to be putting into the hard rock stadium in Miami in advance of the Super Bowl." Um, and Dan Marino is going to be uh, the, or the person who's going to be um, dis- discussing it. You can come down. You need to highlight the um, highlight the, the suite. You need to write about that. 
but you can also get an exclude, you know, a one-on-one interview with him and just um, and just chat with him about his career and his um, about you know about what you want to discuss. And so I got to sit down with him for about fifteen minutes, which was really cool. Yeah, that was. I mean, like I said, I saw that photo. I'm like, okay, so this is a guy I got to talk to just in general. But like, what kind of what was the one question you asked him that you're like, oh, that's a cool answer. You know, I mean, a lot of it is, as I will say, when you're speaking with people, they've they've had the um, They've had the, you know, they, you know, they're, they've got the road of telling this, telling, they get the same question um, that, you know, quite a bit, but one that he, what was really kind of cool was he had, the Hall of Fame had just been announced. And so he was really excited that um, Jim, Jim Covert was uh, put it, was going into the Hall of Fame. He was really, um, really excited about that. Um, We talked a little bit about Ace Ventura um, and he just, how he's, he was like, yeah, I just really didn't want to do it. And one of the other things he'd mentioned was the uh, spike, um, get, the, the, the famous spike play. And I asked him, I said, was it something you just made a decision right at the time? And he said, no, we were thinking about it a few plays, a few plays ahead. One thing I really wish regretted, regretted drilling down was I asked him a little bit about his, his time at Pitt. But he had that famous play in the Sugar Bowl where he basically slung it um, down the field um, in the final play to win to to, to to beat to beat Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. And I w- wish I had um, you know had him drill down on that a little bit. I'll tell you what, we're going to get into this later, so I don't know if you can see this in the screen, but it's a DeLorean. Oh yeah. Uh, premise of the show is we happen the DeLorean, we go back in time, we learn about the history of the gridiron, and maybe I'll let you borrow it. And you can go back and you can ask Dan that question here down the road. Well, if you if you'll hang on with me for just a second, I've got something to show you. So hold on. One oh, second. nice. Yeah. I'm excited. Drum roll. <laughs> you know, I know this is uh, audio only and people can't see it, but then in right here. Oh, yes. He has his own DeLorean. So I am not as big. I'm not really a major Lego um, person, but when I saw that the Back to the Future DeLorean Lego set was coming out, I was like, I have to get this. And I ended up um, building it. And they've got three, they've got all three versions. They've got the 1985 version, they've got the 2015 version, and they've got the Old West version. And you can just kind of switch it out. So I built it and it's uh, one that I need to go back and fix because some pieces are falling off, but I had a lot of fun working on this. Oh, that's awesome. That's the first time I had anybody kick back a DeLorean at me. Maybe, you know, I take that back. Jeremy McFarlane, I think, had a little DeLorean he showed me, but no one with the massive Lego one like that. I think you you one-up the host here, so we'll we'll keep going with that. And uh, speaking of one-up the host, I mean, you, you speak about, a, or you write about a wide range of topics. Before we really dive into specifically football, like, where can the listener of the show find you? We'll talk about it again at the end of the show. I mean, the easiest thing to, to find me would just be to Google Aaron Talent and Athlon Sports, and that'll take you to my personal page, which has several hundred articles of, you know, that I've put together in my, um, I guess now seven years writing for Athlon. Wow. So what, okay. I mean, on your, even on your website with like the whole bio of all the other type of stuff, you have the other, you know, wide range of topics, but what specifically draws you, okay. What draws you into sports, but more specifically for this podcast, what draws you into maybe the football aspect of it growing up or something? I mean, you know, we were talking about, you know, growing up in Tennessee. I mean, I went, my dad would take me to, I mean, I went, we, we had season tickets to go see the, the volunteers play. Um, and so I just really got into football but even as a kid, I collected football cards and really got into 
how much each each card was worth. Why is this card worth this much? Because this player had a good year, or this player um, did not did not have a good year. And sometimes a card would be a huge um, the rookie card would be a huge deal, and then a few years later it'd be worth you know. 50 cents. So it's just, it, it was based on all of these little different factors. So it was just something I just enjoyed following. And be quite honest with you, at the end of the day, I've covered live sporting events. I'd, I'm more at home and more in my wheelhouse sitting, going through old newspaper articles and old books, getting kind of getting a flavor for what it was like way back when. Yeah, speaking of going through the old books, the next the article that we're going to talk about, I you, there's going to be a question in there. I just don't know how you did it all. But there, so, are you? Did you become a Titans fan as they came in, or is it just were you a fan of another team already? Well, I think when in the '80s, uh, when I was growing up, '80s, '90s, uh, it was hard not to be a 49ers fan. I mean, with Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and the West Coast offense. I mean, they were so much fun, so much fun to watch. Uh, the Titans came to Tennessee when I was in college, and it was funny because they moved from Houston. They were in Memphis for a, a year. Then they played at Vanderbilt, Stadi- Vanderbilt Stadium for a year. And then they came in and they switched and they said, well, they're, they're going to have a new name and it's the Titans. And we every, you know, pe- people in Nashville and, and around that area were kind of like, how did they come up with this name? But that first year, they made the they had the Music City Miracle. They were in the new stadium. They made the Super Bowl, and I think they've basically just had a loyal fan base ever since. But I mean, you talk about a team that just kind of their move was kind of a, all over the place to get to Middle Tennessee. But once they got there, they made the most of that first season, and I think they you know that the fans have flocked to them ever since. Yeah, you bring up a good point. I mean, why the Titans? Do you know why they decided on that, or no? Um, I don't know. I, the one I'd heard that they were kicking around before then was the tornadoes, but that year before a massive tornado hit Nashville. And I think that might've been one of the reasons they pulled back on that. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if it's just Titans, I guess, cause it's Tennessee, but I couldn't think of any reason why they're a Titan would make sense, but, uh, they got their thing. Then again, why does a lion make sense? Detroit, you don't, you're talking to a lions fan. So, yeah, I mean, and then the, the bears, I mean, the Chicago bears, they've got their name just to, it was to tie in with the um, Chicago Cubs. Yep. Yep. It is what it is. I mean, that's how things go. And uh, speaking of the bears and the Cubs, so they were around back when the, uh, the original draft was happening back in 36. And that's the first article I want to talk about because you had a massive undertaking. It was this article that for lack of better terms, you picked, the best pick at every position within the draft. The first question I have to ask is how long did it take you to complete this list? It took, it took a while. I mean, it took probably to put the list together, you know, so what you do is you go through each draft and you go through. And the first thing you do is you basically, I I can just tell you, I did a massive spreadsheet. You go in, you pull all of the hall of famers. That's the first thing you do. And you organize them by, by pick. From there, you go in and then you look at where you don't have Hall of Famers in each pick. You you then go in and you find, okay, where I've got the open picks. Who made the Pro Bowl with this open pick? And then you and then after that, then you go out and you find if you have open picks, then then you find players who had some sort of respectable career. 
and you add them. And then once you get there and once you have them all lined up in each pick slot, you go through and you just compare their careers one by one and you decide and you make the decision on who was the best pick. I mean, I will tell you on some of these, some of these were no, I mean, some of these are like no brainers. Like at, you know, at 199, you have Tom Brady. Obviously that is not going to be any sort of controversy at, at all. Um, for instance, this year I had to add three picks to it because last year you had 259 picks this year you had 262. So going in, you know, going in and I will tell you like the, the first, um, the, the one that was probably the most difficult was Donald, um, Iguabuki or Iguabuk, who was a, um, kicker for the Buccaneers in the eighties. Obviously remember seeing his car football cards when I was growing up, but obviously, you know, I remember him when he played, uh, but he ended up, um, ended up basically having, you know, it was in examining their careers. I had to basically compare him to a bunch of people who had similar careers. And I mean, if you look at his career, he basically played for five seasons and his career was cut short because he was indicted in a heroin smuggling plot. He was acquitted for it. But that obviously when you get indicted in something like that, especially during that period, that can that can basically bring your career to a screeching halt. Yeah, that was going to be one of the questions is like where because you had a, I like that you had a formula. OK, start here. Hall of Fame. Check off the list. If there's no other Hall of Famers, that's an easy no brainer. But then when you run into, say, two or three Hall of Famers at the same, especially in the, you know, the first round, like how did you go about the process of weeding them out like internally? So one of the things I will use this as an example is, is, you know, take the, take the number one pick Peyton Manning. I have listed as the greatest number one pick of all time, but let's compare them to a couple of other, of other quarterbacks who were also the number one pick. You got Terry Bradshaw, you've got Troy Aikman, so Bradshaw obviously won four Super Bowls, was a Super Bowl MVP um, twice. You got Troy Aikman. He won uh, three Super Bowls, was an MVP, Super Bowl MVP once. Manning won two Super Bowls, was the first player to do it with two different teams, and he played in two more Super Bowls. But Manning also had he was an he was an MVP five times, and he played a long career. He played for two different played was an MVP when he for playing for two different teams. And when you look at the breadth of that career, it's like it's not really like saying this person had a bad career versus this other person, but it's like you just say, okay, body of work. What's the most impressive body of work if I'm having to lay it all out on paper? And that's and that's it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, Tom Brady. That's like the no-brainer, of course. At one ninety-nine, you many people consider the goat, right? And you, you're not going to touch it. But I could see in many, especially near the top of the ranks, like there's legitimate. Tr you could have went flip a coin at that point, or you know, sometimes it's <laughs> pretty obvious where well, that that dude isn't the guy that's going to make it on here. Uh, what about the? Um, I don't know. Maybe the. Not not Tom Brady. He doesn't count here. But like the one player that you were going through the list and you go, man, dang, dude, this guy went so far in the draft. I didn't even realize it now that I know his career after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I think there are um, I mean, I think there's a number. I mean, like, well, actually, you go one more down. I mean, Bart Starr went at 200 
and um, Bart Starr played at Alabama, and but he had a back injury for a good portion of his um, for a good portion of his college career, and he got drafted at, to the 200th pick because somebody on the Alabama um, in the Alabama program vouched for him, and that's how he ended up in Green Bay. He's in Green Bay. He's doing fine. I mean, he's on the franchise. He's on the team. He's on the team. And then Lombardi, Vince Lombardi shows up and Vince Lombardi says, you're my guy. And so it's just interesting how, but if you don't know that, and if you don't really know what the story is, which is, you know, you, you're always learning when you're writing these, that at the end of the day, you know, that's the thing is like, when you see the draft now and you see like the first, the first round and we put so much of an emphasis on, oh, this person's going here and this person's going there. At the end of the day, you're still there's still so many variables that are going to determine your success. And back then you could, you could, and back when Bart Starr was getting drafted at 200, they, it was almost like, I mean, basically he was, it wasn't like they scouted him. They just did it on basically word of mouth, which is kind of crazy when you think about how much goes into it today. Yeah. And that would have also been, I don't know, instead of round, whatever it was six now compared to then it would have been round like, 12 or something like that because of the amount of teams that were not in the league. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then, and, and it was, it was also a, yeah, it was just a different period. And then, then there's others where you look at just solid players who got drafted and then, and then, you know, went on to have careers, but they were drafted, drafted late. And there's other interesting stories. Let's say two pick 254 at 1958, the, Philadelphia Eagles drafted a tackle from California Polytechnic named John Madden, and he injured his knee in training camp and was never able to play. But while he was rehabbing, he watched game film with um, Norm Van Brocklin, who Hall of Fame quarterback with the both of Los Angeles Rams and the Philadelphia Eagles and decided he really was into coaching. And, you know, think about how all that worked out. Yeah, yeah, it's just the, how how things fall when you get the chips down. And yeah, we all know that name, John Madden. <laughs> he didn't even realize that's where he was drafted or anything like that. What about, okay, so obviously, so the eras are going to be different because back, you know, there's an emphasis on running versus passing or then they change it to the cornerback, all that type of stuff. But if you could pick, I mean, you said 49ers. Are you still a diehard 49ers or is this like... Okay, so there's no allegiance. If let's just pick a team, you pick an allegiance to a team, maybe the 49ers back then, you get the DeLorean, you get to go back, or even through looking at your times, where's the pick where it's like, man, I really wish this guy, they would have taken this player, but then they didn't and they missed out. And then five picks later, they could have had that all stud Hall of Famer. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, that's the thing about Bill Walsh is you felt like Bill Walsh didn't really make make mistakes like that. I felt like his assessment of personnel was a lot better, a lot better than mine. Um, but, but I would say that if you, th- I mean, when you think about some of the, I guess the defensive players and you look at it and I would not, I would say that if they, if the 49ers could have figured out a way if you're talking, not even talking about drafting, but like let's just say the 49ers and the Dallas Cowboys are going after the same um, talent in the 90s. Let's put it that way. And so the for, the Dallas Cowboys are putting their putting their franchise uh, together. And you look at the draft. Let's say, what do you think Michael Irvin might have been like in the 
in the West Coast offense, running those precise routes and be, basically being able to just break away um, because with with his strength. I just that would that would be something I would have been interested to see. Um, some of those, you know, some of them would have been really really interchangeable, I would think. I mean, not interchangeable, but I mean, some of those players that they had, I mean, because you look at how they line up differently. I mean, like, you know, they had, and then they had other receivers and other, and they had other defensive players that would have, that would have lined up very well on the 49ers um, side. I mean, let's, I, let's be honest. If the, if the, if Charles Haley doesn't have all of his mental health issues and the 49ers don't just basically trade him to get him off their hands to the Dallas Cowboys. Does it do the 49ers win um win a couple of those Super Bowls that the Cowboys won? You know, you just never know. Yeah, I mean, just recently I'm a Lions fan again. So Stafford goes there and boom, the Rams win. And that's one of the ones that I looked at that made me shake my head, going, Oh man, back in 2014. I mean, that was a great draft class all around, but the Lions took Eric Ebron, and then it was Taylor Lewan, Odell Beckham, and then there was this guy named Aaron Donald, like three picks later that, mm-hmm. that we could have had. Granted, I think at the time we had Sue and Nick Fairley, but hindsight's twenty twenty as you go. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's funny. I mean, I was thinking about – I mean, that is the that is the question on, like, the Lions when they had Barry Sanders. And it seemed like for a few years they were really making some very sound draft moves. Um, and that in that, I think it was 91, they went 12 and four with their run and shoot attack and made it, I think all the way to the, to the NFC championship game against the Redskins, if I'm not mistaken. And, but they scrapped the run and shoot and they said, we'll get more out of Barry Sanders and we're going to bring in a tight end and whatever, whatever success they were having just started to, started to peter out when at the end of the day, I mean, Barry, I think Barry Sanders was obviously an amazing running back, but you think about it, if he just had a wide open field, like with the run and shoot attack to kind of make his own, that was, that was probably the way to go. Yeah. Just uh, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, as they say. And oh, yeah. we can just sit here as a Lions fan, just wishing and dreaming and hoping. But one thing that did wreck some teams, but some other teams found a way around it was that salary cap, which is the next article that you brought up. Um, getting under the cap, let's take me back to the birth of the salary cap. Okay. Well, the birth of the salary cap came out of the, basically out of the two strikes in the 80s. And there was players wanted their ability to go to, to be free agents. The league owners did not want the the ability that basically to end up getting into a bidding war, like you saw with the NFL and the AFL. And then finally in 1992, um, the basically a lawsuit led by Freeman McNeil, who was a running back for the New York jets basically said that what they, the current structure violated anti antitrust laws. And so the NFL Players Association and the team owners basically agreed to free agency in exchange for a salary cap. And that would really maintain to basically keep the competitive balance. And I would argue that it's it is if you if you really are one that if you're a fan that really just wants your team to be to, to be a dynasty and just basically be able to be able to keep players and have them for long periods of time and have the have great success and you wanted what the Steelers had in the 70s maybe the 49ers in the 80s what the Patriots were just able to do under the current system 
then maybe that's then, you know, then, you know, you might be disappointed with free agency and the salary cap. If you just want exciting football and, and, and parity in the league, I think this has been the, the perfect mix. Yeah, I mean, it, it helps set it set it to uh, the Burt Bell any given Sunday, you know, where it's a legitimately the teams move around. Sure, you're going to have your your dumpster fires and things like that. But from a talent perspective, I mean, you you mentioned I, I guess we keep going back to 49ers. Didn't even realize that when I first brought this up, but you brought up the 49ers president and CEO, Carmen Policy, as and the, the label or the moniker master of the cap. Like, why do why do we consider him the master of the cap? Well, I think he figured out he figured out what to do. I mean, first of all, they were already kind of the 49ers were already in an arms race with the Cowboys and the Cowboys had all this talent and they were not. And the 49ers had come up short with them two NFC championships in a row. 49ers had a lot of aging veterans who could jump ship and could leave. And the 49ers going into the salary cap treated, paid their players very well um, by all by all accounts, treated their players very well when they were on the road. I mean, they had that streak in the, I think, 80, late 80s and, and early 90s where they won 18 road games in a row, which is just unreal when you think about it, when they talk about the difficulty playing on the road. But it's a testament. It was a testament to the team, but a testament to how well they were treated when they flew. I mean, they were one of the first ones to fly uh, take private jets. I mean, can you, I mean, nowadays, like the notion of a whole team just flying commercial was crazy, but that's some of the things they did back then. And so Carmen policy being faced with that said, I need to figure out how to keep some of my core players. And he came up with a unique way of giving players huge signing bonuses before the cap kicked in and he wasn't going to, and they weren't going to go against the cap. And then to really to, uh, to assemble this roster of veterans in 1994 that included Richard Dent, um, Ricky Jackson, um, ultimately Deion Sanders. He came up with some very creative ways to pay them, um, not necessarily the league minimum, but, but a smaller salary with a bunch of incentives on the back end. Now, all things be, all things being can equal, that's you know that d- does come down to obviously mortgaging your future. And I mean, some could argue you were talking about the Lions that they basically mortgage their the Rams basically mortgage their future to uh, to win a Super Bowl or maybe another Super Bowl. But that's you know that is sometimes the calculated risks that um, teams are now making under the cap and the ones that do it the best. I mean, the, the, the gold standard is obviously the Patriots who manages to develop new talent, but also maybe sign that critical free agent when they need to. Yeah. I mean, there's, you mentioned a few of the tricks just initially right there. Are there anything that going through your, your research where it's like, Ooh, that's a trick of the trade for getting under the cap that I wasn't aware of. I mean, the salary cap piece of getting a, a basically taking a huge infusion of cash in 1993 and um, and pa- basically saying, OK, we're going to sign you with a huge signing bonus and then we're going to keep your salary at the, at, the, at this level. But so it can we can stay under the cap was um, was pretty was seemed pretty ingenious at the time. The other thing, I mean, then, you know, that in covering the salary cap that was just kind of surprising to me is there was a period where they just they couldn't afford a practice squad. I mean, that's how close they were to the cap. So they had to get, get stars like Jerry Rice to give up some of their um, additional money so they could actually have a, um, so they could actually field a practice squad. Yeah. um, So 
I don't know enough about it, but I understand that baseball doesn't have necessarily a true salary cap. Is that still the case? Are you aware? That is still the case. Yes, they um, they do not have a salary cap. I mean, I think they. I don't. I know it's. They do have some sort of incentive to. You know, you can't overspend. But I mean, there's a certain. I think there is a certain threshold. I'm not certain off the top of my head. It's not something I've researched extensively. I do know though. But I mean, I think if you can. I'm a. I live in the Washington D.C. area, and you know, I don't know if you were were to, had an up close view of the Nationals fire sale last year, but there was the point where they basically the Nationals basically realized they didn't have a team that could compete, and they couldn't, and so it made more sense to just basically unload all of their top tier talent except for Juan Soto, and but in the meantime, you had L.A., um, New York teams that, you know, were kind of in the same position. The Dodgers were actually at a high, at a, in a much better position, but the, but the Yankees were kind of in the same record wise position as the nationals, but they were, they were buying while the Nats were selling. And I think that's more of an indication of market and what, what you actually, um, what you actually can bring in. And I think if you look at, if you look at some of the NFL teams, I mean, you have these mid market teams that are still able to, is still able to um, who field competitive teams in part because they are able, you know, and they're able to do that because they're not finding themselves being outspent by larger franchises. I don't know what it would be like. I mean, baseball is its own unique beast with each team having their own individual television contracts and benefiting. But I, so I don't know if you'd see something comparable in football where it's basically the New York teams are spending just gargantuan New York and LA teams are spending gargantuan amounts of money and the rest of the other teams are kind of trying to compete. I don't think it would be that way, but you know, I think the salary cap has prevented that from happening. Yeah. You kind of touched on it earlier there too. It's like they, they have that shared revenue based on, you know, the whole, like the TV sales and everything from a, a NFL national level versus just individually. Granted, I'm, I know they can make separate money individually and such, but it helps keep the, the smaller market teams at bay or not at bay, but to be able to help them rise and to maintain competitiveness amongst the league. And uh, speaking of that money, one of the problems that caused the demise of the USFL back in the eighties, I mean, let's get into that one article, but from you, you're taking a different twist. You're saying, okay, I've got these five best teams in USFL history. I'm thinking let's go uh lightning round. You can either share one or two of your favorite story slash gridiron knowledge nuggets from each of these teams. And we'll go with the drum roll, you know, the whole, I can't do that off my top, my thing, but we'll let's start at number five. Now, are these in order based on your, like, that's how you would rank them. Yeah, I mean, and and this is an easy, this is a fairly easy one to do. I mean, when you when it's all when it's all said and done, I mean, you the the NF the USFL had three champions. They only had played three seasons. They got three champions. So three of those teams, you know, what three of those teams are going to be. And then in looking at their other seasons, I mean, it looked like 1984 was the best season, I guess, from football from top to bottom. I mean, they had a large number of teams. They had a large number of competitive teams. But yeah, it's just basically going in and looking at their at their records and their body of work. And ultimately, I mean, if you take the Houston Gamblers, like the 84 Houston Gamblers, what they contributed to the game. Yeah, I mean, that's your number five team. So what's one uh, interesting story or nugget you want to give us from that team? 
I mean, they scored 600 points in a season, which I mean, obviously with get with 18 games, I mean, obviously that's a little easier to do, but they were one of the first teams to really run the run and shoot offense. And you had Jim Kelly, um, who obviously Hall of Famer, and then Richard Johnson and Ricky Sanders, who Sanders definitely went on to have a great NFL career. And they um, they should have gotten farther, but it's, it looks like um, they... I was I was not around for this, but it looks like they just basically gave up a high. They were a high powered offense, but they they did not close the deal and gave up two touchdowns in the against the Arizona Wranglers in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I so I didn't know much about the USFL because my time on this planet too, my, I wasn't really there around when that was going on. But as I had this podcast, I started realizing there are a lot of like very good NFL players that were in the USFL at that time. You just mentioned Jim Kelly, for instance, it's like, I never would have known that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny. Cause I mean, it's, yeah. And it's one of those things like, um, you know, they, the arms race, I mean, of, of them being able to go in and just draft and, and, and pony up money and pay these players. I mean, that was something that, you know, it was, they, and they were playing in the spring and the spring and the summer. So it wasn't like they were necessarily, you know, going on television with the NFL in the fall. And so, you know, it was, it could be a viable, it could be a viable option for another, for a player um, to, to say, okay, I'm just going to take, take this amount of money. I mean, it was still fledgling, fledgling and it was still a bit of a startup in certain ways. I mean, for instance, Howard, Howard Schnellenberger won a national championship at Miami and he basically left right after winning because he was going to be kind of a part, had this, kind of almost investment stake in a Miami franchise in the USFL. And that never came to be. So he walked away from what was the team of the 90s. I mean, the team of the eighties and the early nineties um, to, to something that just fell apart. So you said it was, uh, you know, they pony up. You did that on purpose, right? Cause of your number four team. We got the 1984 Birmingham stallions. No, I would love to say I'm that. I'm, I would love to say I was thinking that far ahead, but no, I, but but no, they, the uh, Stallions, um, they were, there were a lot of teams in 1984 that basically, you know, had, you know, had very successful seasons. I mean, the Jer- New Jersey Generals also went 14 and four in 1984, and they had, you know, they asked, that was a team that had um, Herschel Walker and probably what was his finest season in the um, in the USFL. And then, um, and then I just, you know, they, but they, they were just a, they had a very good offense and they were kind of neck and neck with the, with Steve Spurrier and the Tampa Bay Bandits, which was his kind of precursor to the fun and gun, which he would, you know, definitely hone at Duke and Florida. Um, And then, you know, they, uh, they, they basically lost to the stars who ended up winning, winning it all that year. So I thought they said that they jumped out to me. Well, let's talk about the uh, number number three team. You have the the Baltimore Stars there from what eighty five was it? Yeah, yeah, and this kind of gives you a sense of where things were going with the USFL. I mean, it, and I don't know if you've watched the ESPN thirty for thirty who killed the USFL, but it was interesting. I mean, they were they were a team. They were they they obviously produced some good football and people, uh, and they had some solid fan bases, but you know. This gives you a sense of just how fledgling some of this could be. I mean, between the 84 and 85 seasons, six teams either folded or merged and three teams had to move. And so, you know, basically the Philadelphia Stars, who were 
the best. I mean, of of the of the all the franchises, they were the they were the best uh, franchise in the in the in the history of the USFL in its three seasons. But they're they're finding themselves having to move to College Park, Maryland, with the eventual, and they were hopefully going to move to Baltimore, but. You know, needless to say, they struggled. They finished uh, the season 10-7-1, and but made it into the playoffs and kind of hit their – started playing their best football and won their second straight title. So – and that's – you know, you don't see that happen a lot where a team basically ends up being forced to move, plays in a college stadium, and still somehow manages to win the league title. Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of challenging uh... – I would say that trying to even think of a team that I could compare it to that I in recent memory. Yeah, I don't think I can't think of any team that I mean because never do you really move and then do you have much success because typically when you're moving, you're. I guess if recently maybe no the Rams didn't either. I'm gonna go ahead and skip on that one. We're just gonna go on to number two on your list and my hometown, 1983 Michigan Panthers. What what do we have for them? Well, they had um, Bobby Haber, Haber, who was the uh, ended up playing several years with the New Orleans Saints after after the USFL folded, and they um, ended up beating the Oakland Invaders uh, in, in front of a in basically in front of what was a this is kind of crazy. I mean, it was a crowd of sixty thousand people at the Pontiac Silverdome. I mean, that's that's nothing to sneeze at, sneeze at, and that's in the first uh, USFL championship. And he hit, um, and basically to, to for the win, he hit Anthony Carter, who obviously is a Michigan um, receiving legend with the with basically playing for the Wolverines, and then later the Minnesota Vikings. But he hit him with a forty eight yard touchdown pass with a little over three minutes for the win. Yeah, I mean, speaking of the USFL in Michigan, because, you know, we don't have a lot of success with football, but it's just funny because I remember this one guy at work recently when they announced USFL. He just comes in, ah, ah Michigan Panthers, baby. I'm like, dude, I'm too young to even remember when the, when they were winning. But, yeah, they were champions, not your stinking Lions, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's – and, yeah, they were, they were that. I mean, it's – and it – you know, and you do wonder if it would have actually, if they'd fostered it, if you would have had, there would have been an appetite for spring football, but, and, and summer football, but I don't know. I mean, it seemed, but they also, I'll tell you one other thing about the USFL. You had, you know, they, it was also a period where this would never happen now, but Topps football actually signed deals with the US, Topps football cards actually signed deals with the USFL and they put out, you know, sets for the USFL in 84 and 85. It was just a, it was just a different period. I mean, stuff nowadays, I mean, it's almost like if a team launches a, if a team, if a, if you see a new league launch, it will be, it will be something where it's just almost treated very much like a little bit of a sideshow. The, the last time there was a lot of ballyhoo about a league was the XFL. And I think that was because Vince McMahon was at the height of his powers with the world, with world wrestling entertainment, but that fell flat very fast. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, and some of the members of the network won't like me talking about this with the other <laughs> the USFL and stuff falling to the wayside. But I, whenever any new, any new league comes up, I just go, okay, it's more of a matter of who, who how, who's taking bets. When is it going to fold? Not is it going to fold? Kind of deal. And unfortunately, you know, it'd be nice to get more leagues out there that had more competitiveness and such like that, and more fans. But uh, 
we'll see. Hopefully one of these days. I guess that the USFL kind of almost treating, or the NFL treating them kind of like a minor league, more like actually promoting them more now. Maybe that'll help develop it and it'll last longer than the other leagues have in the past. So they're not a competition type of deal. Well, I am very much like take the take a modest approach. I mean, I am, you know, don't try to be something you're not. I mean, I do think there is there is an appetite for spring football. And I do think that if you, you know, if you want to play in soccer stadiums or smaller stadiums in the in the United States and give players a, an opportunity to participate in a spring league and develop their skills, I think there is something to be said for that. I just don't know what you're going yet. You, but you need to basically put it in some markets where there's going to be a big enough fan base to to support it, and you need to be realistic about what it's going to do. Yeah, I think that's part of it is just the realistic, and it's like don't come into it saying we're going to overtake the NFL. Come into it and being we're going to be a partner. You know that would really help them be able to survive. And let, this is the last one though. Let's go to the 1984 Philadelphia Stars. What? They were your top team, so that means they were your best team ever in the USFL history, huh? Yeah, I mean, sixteen and two, great record. I mean, that's you know, that's a, it's that's that's a hard, that's nothing to sneeze at. They've got one of the, I think maybe the only Hall of Fame player. Um, actually, no, they don't have the only Hall of Fame player because obviously the Showboats had Reggie White, but they had one of the few Hall of Famers um, that played in the league with uh, with Sam Mills, who was at linebacker. They were in the top two in every major defensive category. And when you look at this, they limited Herschel Walker to 50 yards when they played in the playoffs, and they limited Joe Cribs, um, who was also a very good running back, um, to 72, and they only gave up 20 points over three games. I mean, that's that's not 85 Bears territory, but that is definitely um, some great defensive defense territory. I wonder if during that time frame, and I think I brought this up on a previous interview, if it was ever considered that people thought the USFL had a chance to survive past those three years, but not just that, but to actually compete and then to be consumed essentially like the AFL did, or if it was just like how you and I are thinking a little bit more of, of the leagues. Well, I mean, I think the one who thought it could do um, who you should go bigger, go home because it could compete ended up becoming a future president of the United States. So that's uh, so there is that, I mean, Donald Trump was the uh, New Jersey generals, owner. And I mean, he really was pushing for com- competing directly with the NFL. And I mean, that he was actually, he was also one of the proponents of, um, of, of fall football. I think, um, I don't, you know, I, I it, it, there's, he's interviewed in that 30 for 30, um, and is said, you know, look, it, it's actually, that's the line. It's called small potatoes who killed the NFL. And he said, it would, if we'd stayed the, with the route we were going, it would have been small potatoes. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing is I think, honestly, I think the lessons learned from the USFL and the XFL, in my opinion, is you need to be content. If you're going to go into that, you're going to go into that space. You need to be content with small potatoes. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll keep all the, the uh, thoughts about anybody aside, but I just, I'm, cu- I'm curious what the general populace thought. Like if there was enough people that were like, man, this thing is going along and it really could do something and reminiscent of the ones that maybe lived during the time of the AFL merger. And they thought, Oh, here's another one. Or if it was a general consensus of now that's not even going to happen kind of deal. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think there was. I mean, and I think there was. It, give me, I think one of the things that is different now than it was in, say, the AFL and the USFL is you take the NFL, especially during the AFL, the time of the AFL, very much NFL, very much a running league, very much a conservative um, football league as far as just with excitement. The AFL came along and just did it did wide open passing attacks high high scoring offenses i mean that's that drew crowds that drew interest and they were able to immediately get in contract with it with nbc which is which is which is um, kind of crazy usfl came along when the nfl was still a yeah still a run oriented league i mean you had you had passing attacks but very much a run oriented league i mean and then you I mean, just to, and to give you a kind of a sense of how the um, the USFL and the AFL, I mean, the USFL and the NFL differed, take the 1983 draft. It's always discussed how late Dan Marino ended up going in the draft. And it, even though he was such an amazing, it was understood how what a great quarterback he was. Obviously, he had some reputational issues, some baggage issues, which ended up being kind of, you know, going by the wayside as he ended up having a Hall of Fame career. He ended up going number one in the USFL draft. That's how committed that league was to having more of a wide open passing attack and doing and doing greater offenses. Now, NFL offenses are as exciting as they've ever been. And I don't know if I don't think you're going to, you know, you're going to compete with trying to do more of a wide open, um, more of a wide open attack. And I mean, if you can take a look at the XFL, for instance, in 2001, I mean, their whole shtick was we're getting back to, you know, rough blood and guts football, which was, yeah, which was kind of almost coming full circle. Yeah. And then on the business side of it, talking about your salary cap article, the once free agency hit and the players had that ability and they had more flexibility to be able to gain the bigger contracts, then it was like, okay, that just takes away half of the reason why players might want to jump ship to a whole nother league and that kind of thing. Yeah. And one other thing I would just mention is they, when the USFL came along, they had the they still had the eligibility rule of when you could jump so you could you know Herschel Walker one of the reasons he bolted to the USFL was he was able to leave after 3 years it was they weren't able, the NFL still wasn't allowing that at that point right yeah i mean again that's probably one reason that's why they're able to get those big cuz nowadays even if you had a whole bunch of money i just there's not going to be that much money out there to be able to to get it when the players know they can go and well, let's go back. Okay, you said Herschel Walker. We got to give you the DeLorean one more time. You can go back to any USFL moment, and you can kind of relive it. I know you said you didn't, you weren't really like living it back then, but go and live that moment and be part of it. So, if there was a game I could go back to and I could see, it would be this game in 1985 between the Los Angeles Express and the Houston Gamblers. It was between. Um, Jim Kelly basically was quarterback for the uh, Gamblers and Steve Young was quarterback for the Express. And it's dubbed as the greatest game no one saw because it was a, an epic shootout. And the Express led 33 to 13 with little, with less than 10 minutes to play. But Kelly led the Gamblers on a comeback and, the, and they won 34 to 33. And that's just kind of crazy when you think about um, when you think about there was an there was a shootout between two Hall of Fame quarterbacks that just took place in the Los Angeles Coliseum, and 
no one, um, you know, and it's, you know, we're not, we would, if it was an NFL game, we would be talking about this. We'd still be talking about it. It would be something like a, it, it, it would be a, le- it would be a legendary game. Yeah, it'd be like last year's uh, Mahomes and uh, Josh Allen, the, the oh, playoff yeah. game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, uh, which I, um, I, if you were looking at rankings on this last year's playoffs, game for game, most exci- I went through this, the most exciting playoffs in NFL history, game for game. I don't have enough uh, to back it up, but for my experience, yes. I mean, granted, uh, what's it called? Recency biasness, yes, for sure. But it's like almost every game was comeback or overtime or it's just everything. There was like, well, maybe one or two that were not considered like close games. It was it was wild this year. Yeah, yeah, it was crazy. And speaking of that, okay, so you have articles. I mean, A, again, let's tell a listener one more time where they can find you if they want to see your work. If you, um, I'm on Twitter at adding and talent. That's with two L's. But um, if you really just want to pull me up and you know, I don't, you don't want to fiddle with a URL, just Google Aaron Talent, T-A-L-L-E-N-T, and Athlon Sports, and you'll see it'll pull you up to my profile page and my articles. And even though it's not football related, what's your podcast you have? Oh, my podcast, The Loaded Goat. It is a uh, retrospective podcast on The Andy Griffith Show. Um, each week we break down an episode. Um, I'm a huge, I'm a Southerner. I'm a huge Andy Griffith fan. Watched it growing up. I'm watching it with a friend who is a millennial, um, who had never seen the show. So he's experiencing it for the first time and we're breaking it down. And along the way, we have huge fans of the show, historians, um, and just experts from other walks of life to tie in with the show. For example, we, on one episode, we brought in a prison consultant um, who basically advises inmates on um, at, to prepare for going to jail. And he um, basically told us the Mayberry Jail has kind of the same rules as a minimum security prison, which is pretty crazy when you think about it. That's cool to bring it in from all those different perspectives, not just like reliving the show or the episode itself, but getting different viewpoints on everything. Yeah, it's fun. And you learn, you, you know, it's fun to hear to hear different perspectives for sure. All right. So speaking of perspectives and viewpoints, so like we're going to close this out the right way. I'm going to give you the, the the mic, the open air. You get a chance to give the listener your last words of gridiron knowledge nuggets or wisdom for the show. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, if I was going to say, if I was going to say anything about wi- wisdom, uh, my what I would say is it, definitely at the NFL, you were watching – probably the most exciting football I think we've ever, we've ever seen as fans. And I think it's, it is a, it is a faster game. It is a fun game. Um, it is a high scoring game and it is a um, it's, it's, there's basically parody across the league, which is, you know, something you did not see for pretty much the first 80 years of football. So that's, that's something that's very exciting. There you go. A few specific topics from a dude in the business for over 20 years who knows maybe we'll get him on the network to start his own show in the future maybe you can push him there he's very knowledgeable and he's well spoken perfect fit i tell you what if you enjoyed this interview you should reach out to aaron on the socials again you can find him by looking up aaron talent that's talent with two l's pretty much everywhere you can find it and the website aarontalent.com Now, as we transition into the next episode, we're officially on the other side 
of two full years where there's been another show on the Sports History Network besides the Football History Do podcast. That first episode was May 25th of 2020, where Josie Emba talked about Mastinelli on when football was football. I bring up Joe Zambo, but there's way too many members of the network to thank without giving you this long list that I have to go through super speedily. So I'll just go ahead and give a blanket statement of how much I'm grateful for every member that we have and every listener and follower we have of the Sports History Network. I mean, it's been two years, but we're just getting started. We have over 25 active podcasts on the network right now. We have 30 total. And although it's mostly football, we're branching out into all sports. So if you are interested in starting your own podcast, or you know someone else that you think should start one, you know, maybe that uh, author that's super knowledgeable on some particular sports history topic, but they just aren't uh, ready to jump on the mic, maybe you can nudge them over the ledge. All you got to do is come over to us on the website at sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash join. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.